Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. In this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Sam Hubert, an Australian technology entrepreneur and co-founder of Prometicus. Prometicus is a medical imagery and software company headquartered in Melbourne that was started by Sam and his co-founder, Anthony Hall, back in the early 80s. For full disclosure, I own Prometicus shares, and it was the first ever recommendation as part of our share research service, Rask Invest. Sam and I talk about medical imagery and the future of medicine, supreme capital allocation, talent acquisition, and so much more. To kick off this conversation, Sam starts by telling us how he pitched the idea for Prometicus to his co-founder, Anthony Hall. So uh, we met at a wine tasting and it was a few years later when I realised computing would be the new form of literacy that I decided I needed to get a computer so I could at least understand what it was about. Um, there was no IBM PC. It was pretty much hobbyist sort of kits that you put together. And so I went to Anthony, who was a uh, analyst programmer for Varian at the time, and I thought he'd know what would be good. And everything I showed him, he said, that's a toy, it's outdated. I got very frustrated. And then one day I said to him, the only way I could cost justify a computer you'd be happy for me to own would be if we went into computing business. And I thought about it that night. I thought, what a great idea. Doctors, computers. And I rang him the next day all excited. And I said to him, I've got this great idea. And, you know, if I knew then what I knew now, I most probably wouldn't have even proposed it. And I can see why he thought I was a bit mad, but... I sort of painted this picture and he didn't say a word. And at the end, he said, did you finish? I said, yes. He said, take 10 Valium and ring me in a year and hang up on me. Um, he did this one or two more times and eventually I convinced him that maybe this was something we should look, look into. Um, and fortunately, just around that time, IBM announced the um, first PC. Um, Apple announced, uh, you know, the Mac. Uh, just shortly after or somewhere around that time. So there, there was hardware was beginning to sort of appear that you could base a system on. So effectively, that's where we started. Um, we made a deal with a company that was then the second largest computer company in the world called Digital Equipment mm. Corp or DEC. Uh, Anthony was familiar with them because he used their uh, mini computers as, as a student um, and doing his master's at the Trade Uni. Uh, and they were looking to get into the market, had won a, a significant uh, tender with the New South Wales Department of Health. And so we're looking for applications to fill out the portfolio. So we became hardware dealers, which in those days was a big thing, and mm. eventually um, convinced DEC to uh, invest in our software, but they didn't get equity. We, we got things like computer time and compilers and things then that were really wildly expensive, which today you almost get for free, uh, allowed us to bootstrap the business with our own money and not take on external investors or debt. Um, and then we released our first version. Um, it was The product was called Deck Medicus, Deck's name, ProMedicus, half our name. Um, and it was debuted at a... Uh, first GP computer conference that was at the Mooney Valley Racecourse in their sort of convention centre <laughs> way back way back in the day. I think it could have been 85 or 86. Uh, so that's how we started, all, all in billing, practice management, largely GPs and some specialists. And then by about 87, 88, we expanded the product to radiology because radiologists needed more computing they had multiple staff at the front desk. They had multiple locations. Uh, it, it was a bigger system, a bigger sale, and 
it's pretty much how we started in radiology and, you know, till we listed in 2000, it was purely Australian-based. Uh, we then got some overseas clients, but again, it was for that practice management product. Um, but we realised that uh, the clinical side of radiology, you know, radiologists interpreting images was transitioning from film to computer. Uh, that occurred late 90s, early 2000s. And there would be a need to marry our technology, um, which has had all the patient's demographics and actually contain the clinical report that the radiologist dictated with, with that imaging site. So you push one button and everything opens up in a coordinated desktop. So we developed middleware um, for that, which we did a deal with Agfa, who were then a dominant player in the di digital imaging space, not only in Australia, but overseas. And um, that lasted us to about 2007. Uh, and then we realised that Agfa was going in a different direction. The wheels were starting to fall off their cart. And so we thought there's an impedance mismatch here, small company, large multinational why don't we look to go and acquire our own clinical imaging piece or PACS as they call it. And so we effectively went and looked in the market, came close to one or two transactions that for various reasons didn't go through in the end. And then in February, 2009, right in the depths of the GFC, we bought Visage Imaging. So, and that clearly changed our course um, from that point onwards. I heard Sam that, um the purchase price was around $5 million. And I don't think you were the, the first bidder or the only bidder at the time and you got a call up once another deal fell through. Was that? That's, that's actually very correct. Yes, you've done your homework. Um, <laughs> we, we were at, at RSNA in November 2008. Now, RSNA is the big radiology conference. It's held in Chicago every year. About 60,000 people attend. And we were there looking at some possible options. You know, there were a few companies that weren't doing that well. They were for sale, but they all wanted some massive multiple of revenue with no hope of making any profit. And I kept scratching my head thinking, why would I buy this? Um, and then we heard on the grapevine that Visage Imaging, which was not exactly what we were looking for because they were just doing the advanced 3D, advanced visualisation. They didn't really do 2D. They were designed to sit on top of a 2D system, so like an add-on appliance. Uh, we heard that they were being sold to another competitor called Vital. The deal was pretty much locked and loaded, and, you know, people were saying it was about one times revenue or one and a half, and I'm thinking, how come they're getting a company for that and we aren't? Um, as fortune had it that night, we were invited to a, a function by a totally unrelated party, and we met the Visage CEO. And I was speaking to him about it and said, look, the deal's locked and loaded, due diligence is done, you know, we're just finalising the transaction. And I gave him my business card and said, look, if the deal ever falls through, give me a call. And he get, don't worry, it won't fall through. And then a week later we got a call and <laughs> the rest, as they say, is history. Um, it was owned by a publicly listed or NASDAQ-traded company called Mercury Computer Systems who's still there and I think they're successful again. They specialised in software for the defence industry, but it spent a significant amount of time and money building up a life sciences division, which they called Visage Imaging. Um, one of the cornerstone products of that was this streaming platform um, that they bought from two young guys, two young developers, PhDs in Berlin, and then that became the cornerstone of their their offering, and those two people uh, worked for Mercury, as did the team. Um, and, yes, we bought uh, Visage Imaging, which included the development team in Berlin um, and, and a sales and marketing arm in the US, which, unfortunately, that wasn't as strong. Uh, but we bought that for a bit over $5 million, which included currency and transaction costs at the time. Why were you able to buy it so cheap? Well, they had to divest it. Um, what had happened is Mercury had issued uh, some convertible notes uh, with, a, I think, a five-year and a 10-year option that you could put the notes back to them at, at face value. 
Um, and I think the face value was somewhere around, don't quote me on this, but it was somewhere around $50 and the shares at the time were trading at eight. Uh, so they <laughs> basically, you know, had just enough money to cover it apparently, but had to immediately either close down or get rid of any loss-making divisions. So they were either going to sell it or close it. Um, we were in a fortunate position because we had cash. So if we had to raise money, either debt or equity in those days, forget it, just just wasn't going to happen. They wanted to, they had a deadline of 1st of February um, because that's when they would be having their quarterly investor meetings and they wanted to pretty much assure the market that they weren't going to hemorrhage any more um, cash so they'd have enough if people did uh, did uh, exercise their options. Uh, so we, we knew there was a time limit. We had cash. Uh, we were able to buy it the last, you know, literally in the last eight hours of the deal, they tried to change and take out a piece and we said no, mm. otherwise we'd walk away and they acquiesced. And lucky we did because that piece we later sold um, was a, a research product called Amira that was sold as a toolkit to universities. We sold that for a bit over 15 million, so it paid for the whole deal plus some um, and then kept the bit that we want. Um, and I think the important thing for us is clearly we, we kept that whole R&D development team IP. Um, so our biggest office now is Berlin, the same two people. They're a little older. Um, one's our CTO, Malta Westerhoff, and Detlef Starling. He's our head of development. And about 90% of the original team is still there. So that's some 11, 11 plus years later. So we're very pleased with that. And I think that's been, you know, the cornerstone of our success, particularly in the US. Yeah, I, I, I've read um, a few stories where you were quoted in some articles and it sounds like, to, at least to me, what you, of course, you acquired some it was incredible capital allocation to sell a business for 15 million, I think it was about three years after you bought it for 5 million and then keep the really impressive bit. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's a stroke of genius now looking back on it. But I think another thing that you've kind of been, quoted as saying is that what you really got was development talent and really good engineers who bought into the vision um i wonder now if you reflect on that if if you were looking at any acquisitions now does that kind of play in your mind as you know we're looking for talent as much as we are looking for assets uh, absolutely absolutely we as i said we inherited something exceptionally good and something not so good when we bought Visage. Exceptionally good was the actual platform, the R&D, the IP, the talent, the people. Um, and I think the last 10 years has, has borne that out. The not so good was the sales marketing arm um, support in the US. Um, now, at that stage, I w I'd stepped back as CEO. So this was, you know, mid-2009, but by October 2010, um, I came back, the board asked me to come back and the first thing I did was assess the quality of the US team and realised it sort of wasn't going to get us to where we needed to be. So unfortunately I had to blow that bit up and build it up again. Um, we kept two people, which have been fantastic, uh, and built on that, um, which in retrospect was probably the right thing to do. But clearly the drive of it all, is that, you know, R&D and input. So when we're looking and we are looking in the market, we don't necessarily look for product if we could get a development team or an IP, even if it were, were pre-revenue, where we could add our smarts or at least our, our knowledge base to it uh, and integrate it into what we do globally, then we'd certainly look at that as well. But, yes, it was the people, it was the, it was the ideas and the IP um, then we built the rest of the organisation around that. Sam, just maybe to before we go on a little bit further, maybe um, for those people who would be new to kind of wrapping their head around Visage, maybe you could just explain in very simple terms what it does and, and that use case for radiologists and hospitals. Sure. Well, what it does is uh, radiologists don't use film to, to look at images. It's all done on screen. Mm -hmm. uh, and what Visage does is allow them to call up the images enhance or manipulate them uh, as needed. In certain instances, make 2D into 3D or potentially 4D, which is moving 3D, um, and use image techniques to, to enhance um, what they see and then make a diagnosis. So every 
type of X-ray, CT, MRI, ultrasound, PET scan. Uh, they're all types of images. Some of them are already, you know, uh, 3D or they're what we call fusion, which is PET scan, nuclear scan and CT superimposed on top of each other. Uh, so we, we do everything from the simplest chest X-ray, which is pure 2D, all the way through PET scans and, and cardiac CT where you trace the vessels in 3D um, in the one product. So effectively, it's a radiologist's desktop that they use to diagnose uh, and give opinions on uh, X-ray images. I've, I've heard it described, and I remember seeing you present, I think it was at a, a pretty small UBS um, kind of discussion, and you came along and presented, and you had it on your iPhone where you were manipulating images, and you were, you were kind of looking at almost in real time. And I think for people that don't really understand the product, um, the way I kind of think about it is the ability to render images or receive images almost on the go in, you know, seconds. Whereas, you know, this, this file that someone is receiving and inspecting could be the size of a Netflix movie yeah. and they get it in a few seconds. Whereas traditional models might upload and download, which naturally takes a very long time. Yeah, look, the, the one platform is used on what we call multiple targets. So radiologists primarily have very high resolution monitors that they look at the images on. Um, and so that's the primary target. That's where they make the diagnosis. But clearly sometimes people are on call or other clinicians. So you're a neurosurgeon and someone wants to show you a CT of, you know, of a head after trauma and, you know, you, you know you're somewhere, you're at home and you, you don't have a high-res monitor, you can have an iPad and look at it. So the whole idea was to be able to provide diagnostic-grade images to any desktop on demand, regardless of the size of file. And, and we've been able to do that um, using the streaming platform. So without being too technical, most systems will take the file, compress it and send it down the network, uh, then uncompress it and manipulate it locally on whatever device they're using. We don't do that. We get the file in near real time to do all the fancy bits in terms of making it 3D and and, and, and all the volume rendering, um, and that happens almost instantaneously. And then we just stream the pixels, a bit like Netflix, where you can start watching the movie without having to download it all. Uh, that's the closest analogy I can give you. And that gives you two things. It gives you um, advanced capability in 3D and 4D out of the gate, um, but it also gives you the speed that everything's on demand regardless of the target. Mm. Yeah, um, seeing you use it and seeing some things online, I can see, you know, without being a medical professional, how valuable this is. And then hearing some of the case studies um, in terms of, you know, time saved, but also lives saved um, because of this technology. It's just, um, it's easy to see, I guess, now looking back at it more than 10 years, the success that you have achieved. But I think I heard, um, it was either you or Anthony say that you're effectively, uh, an overnight success in 35 years or thereabouts. Um, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe Sam, you can just fill us in on the time that from, from purchasing Visage, ha how you grew the business up until now, because there's been some fantastic wins in terms of um, hospital systems coming on board. I know you've got some big names um, that you count as clients. So I guess if you could just reflect on that briefly, how have you achieved such growth in, in, in probably a relatively short period of time? Yeah, look, the first few years were tough. Um, as I said, we inherited terrific technology. It was originally designed to sit on top of someone else's product. So then, and then, and then when I looked at it, when I came back in October 2010, a year after, you know, a bit a year and a bit after we bought it, I realized that the way it was being sold, it was not possible <laughs> to make money because the cost of sale was too high. It would sell for, $180,000, $200,000 a seat, but you'd only sell one or two seats to an organisation. Um, and, and they would use all these other products. And I said, look, we really need to capture the desktop. And some of my staff thought I'd, I'd just gone mad. They said, you know, we got, we, we're fighting against some of the small guys like GE and Philips and Siemens and, you know, companies have been in there for years. How are we going to take pure advanced visualisation 3D product and get the desktop. So the first thing I did was saying, look, if I'm, a, as a clinician, if I'm looking at a chest X-ray, 
I would like to see the CT, uh, chest CT as well. And I don't want to use two products because to do it in, in 3D and in fancy, you just have to use multiple products. So the first thing we did was invest in the R&D to be able to make the product do everything from a simple chest X-ray through to a sophisticated advanced fit in the one product. Um, now, we were losing about $2.5 million a year in the US originally in the early days, um, but we kept at it and we repositioned the product as a complete desktop. Took the market a long time to try and understand it, what made it so different. Um, you know, they could see it, but they couldn't quite understand it. They thought it was a little bit smoke and mirrors because no one had seen anything uh, that quick um, or that functional to that date as a single product. And I think what we did is we had one or two early sales, which at the time seemed big but now looked small, where we could get the transaction-based model working. Um, they were about 212, 213. Uh, and then 2014 in May, that was the pivot point for us. We won a, a, a large health system called Sutter Health, a large not-for-profit in the West Coast. You know, they're based out of Sacramento, go all the way into San Francisco, into Palo Alto, um, very large hospital group. Uh, we competed against 29 others. Uh, it was a massive RFP, and to everybody's surprise, um, our competitors, uh, we won it. And that really reset us in the market. Uh, it was the first really, really big sale. It was a, an enterprise sale. And number two, who was a large corporate that shall remain nameless, um, they thought, not a problem. These guys are too small. They don't know what they're taking on. They'll fail. We'll be back in six months. We'll win this contract back. Hmm. Don't worry about it, guys. But uh, thankfully, we proved them wrong. And that really reset us in the market. And I think based on that, we started to build the user base. And as you say, um, the last six years, we've, if I had to categorize it, we, I think we've gone uh, further, uh, faster than anyone would have imagined because getting the sort of number of tier one academics that we've got within a five-year period. No one's ever done that before. Well, not that we know of. So um, really a few years under the radar and, you know, a lot of investment and compared to, um, I suppose, the return on investment was negative. And then literally in 2014, it flipped on its head and thankfully it's been a positive return ever since. Do you think, so other than just being in the market and competing for those those hospitals, do you think it was also a case of, you know, uh, the technology and people's understanding of the technology, you know, catching up? Oftentimes we, we see with really innovative products, sometimes they don't get the traction that they deserve because they are so advanced or they, they are ahead of the curve, so to speak. Do you think that played any role in the, the uptake in around 20, 2014? Yeah, very much so. And that, I think that was our frustration because we could see it. Um, but no matter what we did and no matter how we showed it to people, often they didn't quite get it. They didn't quite understand, well, how's this possible? So they, they would look at it and it wouldn't dawn on them that we were just, you know, streaming in a three gigabyte file over Wi-Fi. You know, mm. It was almost in their mind like it was sitting there on the, on the computer at the time. And it took a while to overcome that. And then clearly the other two um, resistant points uh, were one, are you guys big enough to put it in and support it? Um, and then the second point was, could we deliver the benefits that we said we would? Because everybody, had, the industry had over-promised and under-delivered. You know, particularly in the early 2000s, we gained efficiencies and you'd be able to do all this stuff. And, and it never really, most of the vendors never really delivered on that promise. So the industry became very hardened to any of these concepts that, you know, it'll actually be quicker or mm. get a better clinical outcome because everybody said that. So, you know, we, we stuck at it and eventually were able, you know, to prove it client to client. And then, you know, now the, well, you know, we still have to continue to prove it. Um, we have so many use cases and so many reference sites that clients, potential clients can go to that that, that job of convincing them that we can put it in, support it, and that it does make a difference, uh, both financially and clinically, because it has to, on both levels, um, 
I think that's a little easier now simply because we've proven the point multiple times. Mm. Um, maybe to give listeners a sense of, I guess, the size of the opportunity available to you in the US and where you are today, um, do, do you ever release or talk about, you know, how much of the market you might have at the moment and what the opportunity is? We do. Um, I suppose it took us a while is how do you define the market? Mm. Um, now, people define things by hospitals, client numbers. None of those were accurate because some big radiology groups don't have any hospitals. They're purely outpatient. There's still big numbers. Um, and when you looked at all the surveys, you thought they, they were all talking about different things because the numbers they came up with, this is the best of the size of the market, were so, you know, so, so varied. And then we realised the best way is the way we actually build by the number of tests that are done or, or exams, we call them. And the US government put out a, a report, I think it was 2014, it was somewhere around 410 million growing around three plus percent a year or maybe a bit more. So we we use a figure of somewhere about 450, 460 million exams across the entire market space. And based on the number of exams our clients do, which we know because that's how we build them, or the ones that aren't yet implemented, we know because they tell us that's how we formulate the contracts. Mm. Somewhere a bit around 5%. But that 5% is of 100% of the market. And then the question of addressability also comes to is the product suitable across various mm. levels of the market? There, we're pretty sure it is because here in Melbourne, we have a group, you know, near the airport, two, two radiologists, very good. They've been using Visage. They love it for the last eight years, seven or eight years. Um, and it's exactly the same software that Mayo Clinic use. <laughs> 400 radiologists and across, you know, half of Minnesota and Arizona and uh, and uh, Florida. So we know it can work up and down the scale. Then the question of addressability is really around things such as cost of sale, cost of supporting a client, what is the mark where small is too small, those sorts of things. So in a nutshell, we're about 5% of the, 100% of the market. Um, I think we're more than that of, you know, if you look at addressability in terms of what's too small, for us to, to, you know, as a client for the way we work. But even then that, that changes, you know, being able to offer cloud where they don't have to build out their own infrastructure and you can just say pay as you use. Um, I think that allows you to address, you know, a, a different price point in the market. And th- so, again, we won't get to 100%, but we'll, we'll get a fair slab of it. So 5% mm. of the 100% is, is the way we look at it. Mm. That's just US. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, One of the things that, one of the, I guess, one of the things that I hear from some investors who look at ProMedicus and the business you've created, and they think, and they have that, I guess, that concern that you were probably dealing with 10 years ago with hospitals, which it it is, you know, how can this business that spends X dollars per year on R&D keep so far ahead of these, the, the GEs of the world, the Fujifilms of the world, how can it maintain that competitive advantage? And so maybe I'll throw that over to you. How have you managed to keep ahead of the curve in terms of new technologies and solutions for clients? Well, one of the, one of the most interesting and refreshing things when we first met the Visage people, and we met them on a, like a, a WebEx voice call, and they must have thought, well, it was Malta Westerhoff, who's our CPO. He must have thought, what on earth, how are we going to sell ourselves to an Australian company? I mean, next stop is Antarctica and then you fall off the earth. You couldn't, <laughs> couldn't be any further away. Um, and we just had voice and he showed WebEx of some of the products. And, and I know he'd done this many times before with other potential acquirers, so I think he was... He, he was, you know, a bit bemused that we were even interested to, to have a look. <laughs> um, but one thing I picked up is they had a very similar view and culture about software development. And our, our thought and my thought has always been in software, there are only two sorts of people, the quick and the dead, and you don't want to be dead. 
In other words, you always have to be quick. And the minute you're not quick, people will run up behind you and you'll be dead. A bit like a computer game. And so the one thing I noticed with them is they thought exactly the same way. So when we did, you know, eventually acquire Visage and, and then try and, you know, merge the cultures between, you know, US, Australia and Germany, that was the easiest bit. And I think that they're pound for pound, they're one of the most efficient R&D groups I've ever seen. Um, we do it all in-house. We don't outsource um, anything on the Visage side. Everything within the product is ours. We don't use third-party product or third-party toolkits. I mean, we use Microsoft operating systems and, and standard things, but inside the product itself, it's all ours. Um, and that's been their mentality. So one of the things we do multiple times a year is just do a, a sanity check. Where do we stand with the product? Have we got enough resource for it? Do we need more? Um, and look, people think, you know, we're not hiring. We are. And we've hired throughout COVID and we hire incrementally. Um, so it's not like our R&D budget is static, but it doesn't fly up. We don't look at it uh, as a percentage of revenue because mm. uh, we just look at it and say, are we where we want to be? And if we're not, what do we need to get there? And as you'll know, we, we have retained earnings, we accrue cash, we have no debt. And the key role for that money is not just in R&D, but any part of the business is, are we investing enough? That's the number one question. And if we feel we're not, then certainly we'll invest more. And, um, you know, one, our most recent announcement or second most recent, the one around NYU, we're making it another step investment. We're setting up an R&D hub in New York. And the reason we did that is because we felt, look, we are, we believe we are ahead of the pack. Um, how do we stay ahead? How do we build a system that, you know, what is going to be the system of the future three years, five years out? How do we start moving towards that? Um, and the opportunity with NYU came up where the chair of radiology is very interested in all these things. And he said, look, we should do some of this together. Clearly you'll commercialise it, but, you know, we have top radiologists, we have top scientists. Um, we want you to co-locate inside some of our facilities, uh, get, you know, have them on tap. So we decided that that plus having our own base in New York to service the R&D that we're doing with, it, with other tier one clients would be the next sort of step change. So, you know, COVID and visa permitting, that starts next July, August, um, where we will make that investment. Hmm. I... One thing I love about you being involved with tier one clients is that they're associated with the best universities or some of the best universities in the world. Yeah. So that means the doctors and radiologists who are coming through are trained using ProMedica's software. Yes. And I, f I feel that's kind of this self-reinforcing moat that you're building around your business in, a, in addition to these accelerators and these, I guess, co-location and, and, um, these joint ventures on, on in collaboration uh, with the unis too. So I feel like that's like a reinforcing moat that's just kind of circling around the castle, if you like. Um, there was one other thing when you talk about culture and about personnel. How do you incentivize stuff, and how do you think about retaining really good engineers and really good salespeople? Yeah, look, uh, it, it's like everything. Um, it, it's you've got to continuously work at it. But having said that, the fact that the vast majority of the original Berlin team is with us, we, we, we wear that with pride. Um, of those, more than half the ones that are not were with a product that when we bought Visage, we knew we would sunset. It was some older technology um, and they went with that product elsewhere. And so... Really, we've kept the bulk of the people, and I think, you know, um, a lot of that's driven by the two founders of the Visage platform, um, Malta and Deglev. And I think from their point of view, um, it's a bit like watching their daughter grow up and become queen of the prom, as the Americans say. It's not just about money, and sure, we look at remuneration and they're part of long-term incentive programs and get equity, meeting certain targets, and, you know, clearly that's an important part. 
but I think it's also their baby. <laughs> mm. The baby has grown up and they had a few dry runs in the beginning, you know, when they were with Mercury. Uh, you know, I'm sure they were promised by, you know, the CEO in America and the marketing people, we're going to sell thousands of these. And, you know, they'd written contracts but never really got any traction. Um, so I think once we got Sutter, and at first the reality didn't, didn't set in. It was almost like, yeah, we got Sutter, but. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then when the rubber started to hit the road, you know, it, there was reality. And I think, you know, they're, they're also very keen on research. They're both PhDs. They came out of, you know, they came out of what is effectively the, you know, MIT of, of, of Europe in Berlin, the, you know, the Zib Institute. Um, and so they're very interested not only in commercial side but they're also interested in the research side uh, hence you know getting tier one academics that all have these research labs and you know pushing the envelope um, is of, of great interest to them as well so I think it's sure there's the money side um, but also it, it, it's seeing their baby grow up and, and and do so well and I think the team that started never imagined we'd be where we are today in terms of who the client base is so I think that that's very important as well. Um, and we give them a lot of autonomy. You know, it's it's not like we sort of micromanage them. I think they understand what we, we're looking for and vice versa. So I think it's all those things put together. How about for you then, Sam? What motivates you? Um, I, I, I should add some context. When I saw you quite a few years ago, I was struck by your passion, you know, for the product, for the business and for what you were just genuinely doing. Oh, I appreciate what is that. what is what is it about what is it is it about your job and what you've created that keeps you excited? Well, it's, uh, I suppose to a degree, um, you know, Anthony Mine and the you know Premier Sport, it's our baby as well. We took something that no one quite saw and made it into something more meaningful. Um, you know, I don't just view the success financially. I think that's just one part, and actually a small part. I think the fact that we've been able to build a product that actually does good, <laughs> it, it, you know, when you look at it from a, you know, an ESG sort of, or not the governance side, but, you know, environmental and social, it has pretty much zero environmental footprint. Um, but all the positive things that it does, you know, from a enablement and a clinical perspective, and I think that's very rewarding too. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a researcher, but I am a doctor. So a lot of the... You know, AI, you know, things that we're doing around artificial intelligence, around collaborating with these tier one academics, you know, over and above selling them a product, clearly, um, I find that stimulating. So, you know, it, it, you know, but I'm getting a little long in the tooth, but I'm still around and <laughs> still driving. But, uh, you know, obviously, uh, the, the business is far more than just me. But, uh, you know, like, like the people in Berlin, some of the institutions we deal with and at the levels at which we deal, um, I find personally very rewarding. Mm. So this leads me to kind of my, my next point, and I'm hoping you can shed some light on this, is, you know, you've got the, the AI Accelerator program and you're working continuously to develop new solutions and bring better solutions to more clients and more hospitals. What are you excited about with the future, with regards to the future of medical imaging? And, and I guess from a higher level, what do you see as kind of the, the key um, products going forward and key yeah. drivers of your business? Well, there's been a few sort of step changes in radiology. I mean, originally it was purely 2D. Mm. Um, a big step change were new forms of image acquisition, CT, MRI, um, well, I suppose even ultrasound, uh, you know, where, where things have changed quite a bit. Uh, then the evolution from, you know, film, which was crazy because CT used to be printed on film mm -hmm. and it's a digital device. So you're taking digital output and it's like to read an email, you had to print it first. Uh, <laughs> and it's pretty much that. And, you know, to see that evolution, um, then I think the next step was, you know, automating what radiologists does you know, that desktop you know, between so that you push one button and the whole patient's file and images and past images come up, uh, what they call wrist packs or packs um, was the next step. But I think now we're at an interesting stage where um, I think the next 
quantum leap will be things like artificial intelligence or assisted diagnosis. Mm. And I think, you know, there's a lot of hype about AI in every industry, particularly in medicine, but fundamentally it is very well suited to radiology because radiology is all about pattern matching. Mm. That's what radiologists do in their head. Now, it's more sophisticated than that, but it's a matching process. So I think the changes that we're, you know, at the verge of are very exciting. I don't, you know, originally radiologists were worried, will this take my day job? I don't think so. I think this will be an aid. I think it's not quite there yet, but will be. Um, and I think being involved in that, you know, as and how it evolves, because um, that's not set yet, um, I think will be very, very exciting next stage. And then the other thing that I think is really interesting is the, you know, democratisation of health information because people forget that the ultimate person that pays for it and whose life literally depends on it is the patient. And a lot of health has always been around the hospital or the clinician. Um, but it's really it, it's really around the patient. And I think more and more things happening that are patient-centric, patient access to their own um, information and imaging is a key part of that. I think that's what we're going to see in the next few years and how that evolves. Yeah, clearly there's privacy and all these other, um, you know, things around it, but I think AI and, and, and democratisation in terms of patient access to their own health records um, and possibly, you know, what they call tailoring health where it's more personalised health where not one size fits all technology can help that and that's in that patient sphere. I think that they're going to be the exciting trends. Mm. How about things like telehealth? Um, I know you have some exposure to this in effect. Um do you see something like that playing a more relevant role in the future? Absolutely. Uh, look, telehealth, there are multiple avenues of it. Um, there's teleradiology where people read the X-rays and remote, and that's been around for years and years and years. I think what's, what's changing now is the file sizes are getting bigger, the need for immediacy is, is higher. Um, so our technology fits into that exceptionally well. So we wrote a contract with a group um, of Palo Alto entrepreneurs, ex-Google people actually called Nines back in December, mm. where they're looking to use their own artificial intelligence algorithms and teleradiology together to give a better quality of service. And, you know, some of their um, owners are radiologists from Stanford and radiologists from Mount Sinai in New York. So tier one top class radiologists using tele telehealth or or teleradiology and AI. So I think we'll see more and more of it. Um, and as I said, we will be part of it. Uh, we, we even do things here now, which we talked about in our latest annual report, where here in Victoria, the Ambulance Victoria has a, um, a tele-stroke service. So if someone uh, has an event and it presents to an emergency uh, department in the country, if they think it's a stroke, they'll immediately do a CT. Um, but all of that will be read by an on-call specialist neurologist here in Melbourne, and it's shared between you know a number of our public hospitals. Uh, that's based on visage technology. So it's not teleconsulting, but it is telehealth. And look, I think more and more of it. One of our clients is um, before COVID, well before, actually built what they call the hospital of the future where it doesn't have any patients. It's purely designed for, for telehealth. And I think that I, think, I may be wrong here, but it could be up to about a $50 million facility where they have doctors and nurses and everybody else, but um, no patients. The patients are all you know, remote. So, how did, so they would get scans at a clinic and then the doctors um, would assess remotely? Yeah, and, and that you can do anywhere with us. Um, you can do that with others, but it's getting more and more problematic. So mm. someone can read a chest x-ray on the other side of the world, pretty much any system can do that. Um, it's really the more sophisticated, advanced thing. So, you know, going back to this uh, CT for stroke, the file sizes were very big. They'd be two and a half gigs, um, and they needed to read it. Like every second literally counts. 
So if it is a stroke, the first thing they want to know is, do we initiate treatment? If so, which one do we need? You know, things that will thin the clot. You, the sooner you do that, the, the, the more effective the treatment. Or do you need to evacuate them to Melbourne where someone sort of literally retrieves the clot, like like a bit like an angioplasty of the heart, but they do it in the head. So it's, you know, very, very highly specialised. Um, you know, every every minute is vital in those those instances. So the fact that they can just read these massive files on demand, um, and again, they're all 3D and manipulated, and clearly they do that with us. So I think it's important. Mm. Um, as we come to the back of the the conversation, Sam, um, I guess there's there's two more questions, and and um, my first is that you know from looking from the outside. Um, I've followed Prometicus and the story for quite a few years. Yeah. What do you what do you think? And this might be from you know the repeated analyst calls that you have or chatting to investors, etc. What do you think, if anything, analysts and investors have missed um, over the years? And do you think there was any way that people like myself, looking from the outside in, could have really grasped the big picture here and, and what was really going on? I don't think anyone's really missed anything. Um, as I said, I think a few things have happened. Um, people, I think, were surprised at the the number of Tier 1 clients that we got and the time frame in which we got them, also against who we were competing against. I think a lot of people thought technology looks good. Um, yeah, it's leading surely someone with the big pockets. They'll just catch up and, you know, just overrun them. Um, may have been one of the thoughts in the market. I think also, but I, I think we've been fairly upfront with, you know, what, what we believe about the technology and we can only, we don't know what other people are doing in secret and in their labs. We only know what's in the market um, that we compete against. So I don't think they've missed too much. I think maybe that in the beginning they may have underestimated the runway we thought we had. Mm. Um, but that's not uncommon. Remember, you know, a lot of um, small Australian companies go to the US looking for, you know, the big market, which it is, and, you know, often come away without success. So it's it, it, it's by no means guaranteed just because you've got a good product and you've got a good idea that you're going to make it. So maybe a few people were, um, you know, more wait and see, if I could put it that way. But I don't think they're they've missed anything per se, um, not that I know of. At least not in the last few years, right? The the business um, at the time of recording this, which is late October, is now, according to the market, worth over $3 billion, which is an incredible, um, an incredible thing to think about for you, I imagine. But um, one of the things, one of the questions I also want to ask you um, is... Has your life personally, have, have you changed, has your life changed and your values and your principles changed over the time as, as you've experienced success and in, in business and, and um, otherwise? Look, uh, not really. I think we were, you know, in the early years, Anthony and I funded everything uh, with our own money. We never took on external investors and never took on any external debt. So when we listed in 2000, um, we, uh, you know, we sold 20% of the company, um, kept 80%, and that was a sell down 10% each. Um, and then a few years later, because liquidity was a big issue, we sold another 20% each. Uh, sorry, 10% each, 20%. So um, since then, we really haven't sold down much. There have been two minor sell downs in the last one a year ago, one a year before that. Um, but that's about it. And I think, you know, we, we've taken some chips off the table, which we, we felt was prudent. Um, but no, I think the only change in my life is as, as we get busier. <laughs> Clearly, if there's more and more um, for me to think about. And, you know, obviously there's a pressure of, of business like any CEO and investors, but we try and keep that as simple and straightforward as possible. So that helps. But no, in generally, no. I think uh, the main thing for me is... Um, I work three jurisdictions, but that seems to work well. US in the morning, Australia mid-afternoon, um, if need be, Germany uh, early afternoon, early evening. So it fits pretty well. 
And do you, do you see yourself doing this for quite a while yet? Uh, well, I, I mean, I, not forever, but, you know, as I said, I don't, uh, you know, people, I, I have a good team around me and clearly as a, as a company and a board, we're looking at succession planning and, you know, some people think about, you know, what happens if you get hit by a bus, but I prefer to be a little less morbid, like what happens if I want to get on a holiday or <laughs> things like that. And, and, and I'm able to do that. Um, you know, I can work from pretty much anywhere, but uh, mm. clearly bringing up people and, and, you know, I think we're doing a good job at that. And uh, eventually, uh, you know, hopefully there'll be a, a good successor and I'll be able to sit on the board and more in an advisory capacity simply because, uh, you know, I've lived and breathed the industry for 30 years, so I have a reasonably good handle on it. Mm. Okay. One last question that um, I like to ask, whether it's uh, someone like yourself, a founder or a CEO or an investor, is just to ask for one piece of advice you would go back and give your younger self. So whether that be about life, business, investing, whatever it might be, um, what would you tell you, your younger self? Well, I mean, there are a few things. Personally, is to keep things simple, which is what we've done. Um, we've always pursued the mantra of fewer, smarter people is a better methodology than more people that, that can't do it, that are not as proficient. And I think that stood us really, really well. Um, if you look at us, we're just, you know, we're just over 80 people um, across three continents running a business that, you know, um, material, if I can put it that way. And mm -hmm. it's making sure that you have, you know, in my, my mind, fewer but smarter people. And I think uh, that works really, really well. Um, well, at least in our industry it does, mm -hmm. and I believe it would work in a lot of others. Um, and we try and keep things very simple so we can sleep at night in terms of, you know, not having debt. Again, we're conservative. Not everybody's the same, but... Um, that's part of the keep it simple theory. Because um, I think sometimes people believe you have to really complicate things to get somewhere, and I'm not so sure that's always correct. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah. there's so many takeaways from that, Sam, and, and so many takeaways from this discussion. So um, I just got to say thanks for th taking the time out to join, join me on the show. 